And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Welcome to Better to Speak, the podcast where we use storytelling to transform silence into language and action. I'm your host, Casey Felton. So the inspiration for this episode came from a viral tweet that I made a few months ago about how perfectionism and overplanning are symptoms of anxiety. And for context, I've been in therapy for the past few months to address anxiety, specifically adjustment disorder with anxiety. So I was doing some additional research about it. So of course, knowing that perfectionism and overplanning are symptoms, but in the context of my own, I won't say diagnosis, but rather affirmation of my anxiety by my therapist, that's, you know, that information hit way different, which led to my tweet. And so as the tweet gained traction, I was interested in what the response was and the conversation that stemmed from it. So I did read the responses. And the main things that were brought to my attention were the idea of what it means to normalize mental illness, as well as the idea of self-diagnosing or just casually claiming full-on mental disorders without being diagnosed or treated by a professional or to the point of trivializing said disorders. And while I didn't take it too much to heart, I think another realization that I had was that social media dialogue lacks two things, nuance and context. So while these platforms are now used to make vital information a lot more accessible, I think the amount of information being shared, the, 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 the quickness with which it's shared, definitely prevents a lot of, a lot of deep conversations. It's, it makes it hard to fact check, it makes it hard to really understand if people are engaging in good faith. Um, and just the, the overall lack of digital media literacy and intentionality with which we engage with this content causes a lot of what could be transformative conversations to go left, which is what we see and experience a lot of. And specifically with regards to dialogue around mental health, this sparked a question of how do we know when we've arrived at the point of normalizing mental illness? So thinking beyond that, because of course fixating on, you know, the fact that people experience mental illness should not be the final destination. I think that that's a rather shallow destination, a premature finish line. So to follow up to that, how do we imagine and create a world where we not only normalize mental illness, but build a world that makes it easier to prioritize your mental health and wellness? To ground this conversation in current events, the ongoing Black Lives Matter uprisings, which of course as a black person, as a black woman, um, we feel the emotional and psychological ramifications and trauma of, of white supremacy, of patriarchy, of capitalism every single day. But for me, I will say that after George Floyd was killed, I definitely felt moved to go inward and start my racial justice work there. And I've realized that the work you do to heal and reconcile with your racial trauma is just as important as the work that you do outwards in your community. So to tie in all these components, I spoke with Jordan Dogan, a psychologist, PhD candidate, and creator of the Black Folks Therapy Instagram page. Through that platform, she shares content to help Black folks build self-knowledge, learn resistance strategies, and embrace growth and healing. In our conversation, which I will say, even though I'm obviously biased, was one of my favorite ones, we explored this topic of mental health and wellness in a way that offered tangible solutions for y'all who are listening to begin to do that inner work and think about your mental health in a comprehensive way, which is especially important and relevant given what some call the dual pandemic of having to face the threat of the coronavirus pandemic and white supremacy. So I really hope y'all are able to take something positive and transformative from this conversation. Um, Jordan mentioned a few resources that I'll be sure to link in the show notes. And of course, be sure to follow the Black Folks Therapy on Instagram at B-L-K-F-O-L-X Therapy, which will also be linked in the show notes. 
My name is Sharon Duggan. I am a um, PhD candidate in counseling psychology at the University of Kentucky. I'm a fourth year, and I've been doing therapy, therapy for about five years now. Um, but essentially, I am a PK, so a preacher's kid. I grew up in the church. My dad, my granddaddy, my mom are all pastors. And so how I got here was essentially listening to those stories of folks in our congregation, just talking about some of their mental health struggles and, you know, me just kind of eavesdropping and, you know, listening in, you know, what people would call grown folks business, but that was me. <laughs> and, um, you know, oftentimes those stories are really sad. And what I heard, you know, I would always kind of think about, okay, how would I respond to this? What I would always hear is like, just pray about it, you know, continue to have your faith, continue to believe, you know, you only need faith as small as a mustard seed, you know, the list goes on. Um, but those people kept coming back like every week or, you know, every Sunday or every event we had at church. And so I was like, you know, is that really helping them? And so kind of growing up, I was, I'm the oldest of four kids. I was always kind of like the listener. And I realized that like, it's good to have faith and that's super important as a coping strategy but essentially you know we need more coping skills and so I decided to get um, my bachelor's in psychology at, the, at Clemson University and that was great um, but of course you need more training you can't do anything with the bachelor's besides you know be a social worker which is fine um, or actually like you know not even be a social worker but I decided to get my master's at Clemson and it was a pretty white program and I was like, this is not really training me to work with black people because that's essentially who I wanted to work with. And so um, I was like, you know, I need more training, but I want to be trained by black folks. And so I decided to look up programs and there were some scattered here and there, but University of Kentucky really like sparked my interest. They were doing a lot of social justice work, doing phenomenal things. And so I ended up here. Um, and it's just been a great process of learning and unlearning and growing personally, professionally, um, and still using my faith as a tool, um, but recognizing that there's other tools out there, too. So that's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. And then what um, what inspired you to start the Black Folks Therapy Instagram page? BFT was really a quarantine project. Like I was sitting at home. I remember um, hearing about Ahmaud Arbery and I do a lot of racial trauma work. And so, you know, for me, I was like, whew, um, this is intense. And we're also in a pandemic. So I'm wondering how people are trying to adjust to everything. And so for me, it, it took a couple of days and I had to meditate and pray and I cried and I, you know, slept for a while, you know, just the grieving process in a way. And then I was like, you know, I have all these, I have all this information. I have all these these tools that I've been researching. I have access to a lot of things. Why not start an IG page and just kind of get it out there, especially because, you know, pandemic, a lot of folks aren't working or they're working from home and school was trying to figure out if we were going to be on online or if we were going to come back on campus. So I had a lot of extra time. And so I was like, you know, let me just start posting more and let me start talking about some of the things that we're researching. Let's make it accessible to the people who need it. And so it was just a quarantine baby and it's kind of blown up. And I appreciate it because you know, it allows me to connect with folks like you, which I'm super grateful for. Um, but it was just kind of a thought. And I finally just stepped out on faith in a lot of ways and just did it. So you mentioned Ahmaud Arbery. And one question I was really curious to ask you was like this, this term that you had made a post about called uh, vicarious racial trauma. One thing I was thinking about is with all these videos being posted online, I think that's been, you know, a lot of, um, 
a lot of just like how things have gone viral, like of course George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. And um, I think even back to like Michael Brown, that picture of him laying in the street and like how that's like ingrained in your memory. And so I think um, that's kind of been my main experience with uh, like a lot of my racial trauma comes from seeing these videos. Like I even think, you know, even something as simple as like people recording their interactions, like these arguments and stuff like that with white people in public and like how you, I feel those same like tension and stuff like that when I'm in public. And so um, what would you say is like, can you just speak on the the impact of like this rise and, you know, people recording everything and social media and like, how does that play a part in people's mental health? And again, like experiencing things like vicarious racial trauma. In our research, we talk about just race-related stressors, but vicarious racial trauma is essentially trauma, PTSD-like symptoms that emerge from you watching someone who looks like you um, be verbally, physically, emotionally violated and abused and, you know, killed. And so when, when we think about Ahmaud Arbery, even when we think about, when we hear about Breonna Taylor, although we didn't see her, her murder, we didn't witness it, just the thought of it potentially happening to us can can produce a lot of PTSD-like symptoms. And so um, something to think about is we are we are the black people are the the group that watch, that engages in social media the highest, the most. And so when you think about that, we also see a lot of folks who look like us, you know, like you said, all these interactions with the police and white people and just even you know, interacting with folks on Facebook and things, we have these trauma responses, right? And so we tend to see that manifest in our body. Like when you said the tension piece, that's definitely a piece of it, the hypervigilance, feeling on edge, but also it, it triggers us emotionally. So maybe we're scared, maybe we're fearful. I know for me, I cry because I'm just like, oh, this is overwhelming. Um, but then also cognitively, we're trying to make sense of things of like, why do these people hate us? And why is the world still like this? It's 2020. And, you know, well, maybe they're just born that way. Or, you know, and we try to get into these cognitive battles with white people as to, you know, who's the good white people, who's the bad white people. But I mean, I think that vicariously we all experience it because we operate off of a collective consciousness. And so just, you know, us interacting we, we experience it beyond just the physical realm. We experience it spiritually too. And so I would say we're definitely in spiritual warfare where we're trying to figure out how to manage all of these stressors in addition to a pandemic that is disproportionately killing us. So when we think about racial trauma, it's not just these videos that we're watching, but it's also recognizing that a lot of us are dying from COVID. A lot of us are more likely to be essential workers. A lot of us are, um, you know, really stressed out from work and maybe we've lost our jobs or we're working from home and trying to adjust. And, you know, we don't have these coping strategies that we really need. So racial trauma can be vicariously, can it can be experienced through the media, but also it's just hearing about certain things, too. And I think with hearing, you know, hearing about you know, the conditions of black people in this country and just around the world, like. I know, like, the Black people that I know, like, in my circle and just in my community kind of accept our racial trauma, accept racism is almost like a fact of life. So, like, one thing you talk about is the importance of self-knowledge. So, like, even though, you know, I know my experience as a Black woman in this country, like, I know about racism, like, how can I, or how can we, like, people listening as well, like, begin to um, be more intentional about understanding our experiences in terms of, like, reconciling and healing? 
So I think that self-knowledge is probably the the most important thing. And because we, like you mentioned, are a lot of us are Black Americans. So we have been kind of disconnected from our roots and our heritage and the, and the broader diaspora. It can be really difficult for us to kind of go back to our roots and understand where we came from. Um, and so a lot of my work kind of focuses on African scholars, so those who maybe identify as Black American, but who have kind of touched base um, to talk about why it's important for us to recognize who we are as people, um, to kind of resist any kind of negative stereotypes in the broader discussion about who Black people are, what we contribute, um, our value and our worth. Because I think a lot of times what racial trauma also includes that we don't talk about is internalized racism, right? So internalized sexism, internalized colorism, internalized heterosexism. I mean, all the isms we can internalize. And so self-knowledge looks like you unlearning those things, you relearning more about yourself, you figuring out, you know, what are the Black cultural values that I espouse, what are the ones that maybe I don't necessarily align with, which is okay, um, but really getting to a place where you recognize who you are as a person, what's your purpose, what's your values, what do you contribute, you know, what path do you want to set, um, that is a way to kind of resist racial trauma, and so I think for me, one way that I've really been able to recoup in a lot of ways in this pandemic and also with everything racially going on it's just the fact that I'm living in my purpose right I'm giving back I'm helping folks I'm connecting with folks that I otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity to and so the goal is really to help black people figure out their purpose and their values because that's a part of the self-knowledge that's really gonna help you resist any kind of negativity that you receive from society about what you look like and how much you earn and, you know, what you can contribute and how smart you are and the list goes on. So did that answer your question? And then as you were talking, it made me think of like a lot of this dialogue around Black is King and how like the spiritual kind of connections that Beyonce mentioned in that film, like people are calling it demonic and and saying things like that. And like some of that is coming from Black people too. And it's like, how do we, you know, I guess just like, like you said, like unlearning that internalized racism or just connecting with our roots when we've been told like, you know, Mm -hmm. certain things about our, our, practices. So what would you say are the um, some of the scholars that you have um, learned about? Yeah, so right now I'm really diving into Dr. Janet Helms. Um, she does a lot of white identity development information. And so she's developed a white, white identity development model. And so that's really helpful for me when I'm in these conversations with white people. And I'm like, oh, you're in that stage. Okay, I'm not even going to give you my energy because you're not, uh-uh, you got some work to do, right? But also Linda James Meyer is super awesome. When you think about a lot of um, Black psychologists, that's really who I've been looking at, but especially Black women at this point right now in my identity development, really just giving credit back to them. Um, I also study like relationships and sexuality. So kind of going back and, and, and digging back deep into Black Black female scholars who have really, really contributed and aren't getting the credit that they deserve in a lot of ways and I think that um, I was actually thinking about this the other day that I feel like um, I feel like especially now I have tons of white people wanting to know about you know racial justice and social justice and whiteness and all this and a part of me is like we give a lot of credit to white scholars but we don't really think about the black scholars and how much they contribute and so that's really what you know, I would really recommend folks think about Jen, Dr. Janet Helms, 
think about um, Dr. Linda James Myers to start because they talk about our identity and our worldview and how we're really connecting to ourselves. So that would be the two I would say start with because sometimes they can be overwhelmed. Can you speak on the importance of language, like the ability to like name and define the things that you're experiencing, maybe physically in your body, like your emotions, and how does that impact your mental health and wellness? Yeah, um, that's a loaded question. Um, there's so many layers to it, right? Like I think just historically and generationally, we haven't been given that tool of language because essentially that was something that was taken away from us. We couldn't read, we couldn't write. Um, you know, we had to see, we had to communicate through song, you know, you know, the gospel. And so a lot of ways our communication has been through, you know, music and things. And while that's super important, I think what I'm learning in my work is that it's really, it's really helpful, at least when you have a word or some type of description to describe what you're experiencing. Like, I think just us being able to introduce the fact that you can experience racial trauma helps a lot of Black people understand like, okay, I'm not crazy, right? Like, I'm not alone in this. Other people experience this. So it helps to normalize. It helps to validate. And it also can help to affirm. And so I feel like I hope that in my work with folks and then also just we, we can get on this movement where we do this the same thing with our emotions. And so on my IG page, I talk about um, an emotion wheel or a feelings chart. And, you know, someone made it. I don't even know who made it, but I've always used it, especially to help me explain what I'm feeling, just because I feel like I didn't have that language growing up. You know, it was like, how you doing? Good. You know, or like, how you feeling? Good. It's like, okay, well, what does good mean? You know, or like, how you feeling? Bad. And so, you know, giving it more descriptive language can really help people to understand, like, are you sad, bad? Are you happy, bad? Or you know, are you, are you excited? Are you scared? Are you angry? You know, so it gives you the language to really connect with folks because I think that we see this in our relationships. We see this just in our experiences, especially when you're thinking about racism, you know, you might be feeling all kinds of things and you, you can't explain it. And so when you sit across with someone and they're like, well, explain your experiences to me and you can't really connect to it emotionally, it leaves you maybe feeling powerless. It may you know, maybe hopeless, but also it really hinders our inability. It really hinders our ability to kind of um, connect to other people, right? So like me being able to say like, yeah, I'm experiencing racial trauma too, may help us to connect on a level to where we can support each other. You know what I mean? So I think that, I hope that we can get on this path of moving towards being more accepting of our emotions and allowing us to emote and express them without being called weak or you know, the many different stigmas we have towards, you know, emotions and being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And speaking about, um, like, being able to have those conversations with other people, like the idea of normalizing, you know, mental health, that's one thing, like, the word normalize is something that people have been throwing around a lot on social media recently. But, like, how do you, um, like, how do we know that we've arrived at that point of, like, normalizing, you know, mental illness and normalizing, talking about our mental health? Mm-hmm. I think because we operate as a collective, I think uh, a place to start measuring, if that's what we would want to do, would be to where anyone, regardless of your identity, regardless of your background, your, you know, all of these different intersecting things that are that make you who you are, you're able to show up to a mental health professional and say, hey, I need help. Or, you know, I think once we're able to really open those doors for folks to communicate that without shaming them, you know, as far as masculinity norms, without, you know, carrying all these spiritual 
things, you know, if you're not Christian, then, you know, like operating, making sure that we override these systems, right? These isms that we all encounter depending on our identities. I think once we're able to say, everyone is welcome, come as you are to get the support that you need. I think that's a good measure of progress. But right now we're not there. I know we're trying to get there. Um, but yeah, I would say to the point where everyone feels like, oh, therapy's a thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, to the point where like, I feel like, personally, I don't think I'll ever be out of a job. But that would be a goal, right? Is to where I would be out of a job. Like no one, I mean, everyone would be good. We would, we would be our own therapist. We would we'd be able to act as a collective and support each other. That would that would be the goal, and that's very aspirational. But I think a, a measure of progress is to where folks can say, I, I'm going to a therapist and not feel some type of way about it. And then um, what are some practices that people can cultivate now, like given we've been in quarantine for a few months, but like to, to cope with that stress relating to, you know, everything going on with diversal trauma and then quarantine as well? Mm-hmm. Yes. Whew. We've been in quarantine, what, four months now? Yeah. yeah. I don't even know. Real long time. <laughs> and we've been with racism forever. Right. So um, I would say to get started, something that I've also noticed that kind of connects to your previous question about emotions is that we're also recognizing that, and we probably already know this, but it, there's, a, there's a disconnect between the mind and the body. Um, to where you may be able to experience these things, like maybe mentally and process your thoughts. But when you, when I sit across from clients, at least in my experience, when I sit across from them, and even with myself, and I say, what are you feeling like in your body? What sensations are you having? Some people really struggle with that. And the thing about trauma is that it, it manifests in your body. It resides in your body. Um, your body is pretty much the first communicator that, something is wrong, right? Like, and then it transfers to your mind, right? So your mind is typically the last thing. So there's so many things happening in our body that we don't recognize, especially after we experience racism and talk about racial trauma. Um, So a, a big piece of it is getting out of your head and into your body, right? So this could look like active work, like dance and exercise, maybe even playing ball, um, you know, getting up and moving is a great way to kind of disrupt the tension in your body. Um, and then that also helps you to de-stress because you know that, well, you might know this, I don't want to assume, but like we're, I'm trying, a lot of my work looks like connecting racial trauma to the health disparities we experience. So, you know, black folks are, you know, considered obese. We're, we're, we have the worst health outcomes. And so I really think a part of that is because we're trying to manage all these thoughts around racism and the stress and the cognitive load. Um, but we don't recognize that our body feels it way, way long before. And so if we can get out of our minds and into our bodies and work through the trauma there, then I think that that's a good piece of it, but definitely connecting with your body. But, you know, also if you already do those things, practicing self-care, practicing collective care, practicing things that really allow you to live in your purpose. So this could be yoga, this could be meditation, um, this could be, you know, Zoom parties, this could be self-care as far as like, you know, resting, you know, we don't, we talk about self-care, like self-care, but self-care could look like resting, could look like setting boundaries, could look like you eating healthy, could look like you getting enough sleep, could look like you drinking water. So it's not the going to the nail salon, it's not buying the next pair of J's, it's not, you know, buying the newest car on the lot. No, self-care is like actually taking care of your body um, and your mind. So that was a long 
response, but I hope that that gave folks some tools to start thinking about, um, especially when we're talking about quarantine and being in the house all day. And then, like you said about being in the house all day, like one thing I've been thinking about is like boundaries around like work and technology. Like since we're always on Zoom, like most people are on Zoom working from home and like doing other things. So like how can people like what advice would you give around just taking yourself, taking care of yourself in regards to like your interactions with technology? Mm-hmm. Setting a schedule, you know, like like you said, we're on Zoom all the time. I'm about Zoomed out. <laughs> Um, and so that looks like me not getting up and the the first thing I do is not getting on social media, right? Like, so getting up, actually making some tea or drinking some water, you know, giving my thanks to the Lord and the universe, maybe doing some sunbathing, maybe going outside of my porch, maybe listen to some music, but not, not being so attached to our phones to where like if our you know it's like oh my god the world's gonna end if I don't have my phone beside me right so setting a schedule not letting your phone be the first thing you do in the morning and the, and the last thing you do at night um and so for me I even though I run like a social media page and I have tons of dms and things I'm only on social media two hours a day like I have set my phone to where it'll say oh you've been on here Two hours, we got to take you off. Now, granted, I can override that, but I think it's a really good indicator. Okay, you've been on here a little too long. You got all this stuff happening. You know, you're going to be on Zoom for most of the day. So just kind of setting, like setting boundaries with yourself in a lot of ways to make sure that you're spending time off of the media and off of your phone. And then um, one thing that's kind of like off, but like one thing I saw on your page that you talk about is like gardening and things like that, like mm-hmm. reconnecting with nature. You mentioned sunbathing. Like how can, um, or can you explain the, the significance of that, of that reconnecting with nature and, and how does that help our, our mental health and wellness? Yeah. So just kind of like, I, like we talked about earlier, connecting back to our culture, right? And connecting back to the things that I, I tell folks a lot of times, the coping strategies that. I talk about folks really think they're like these magical, mystical, like amazing things. Like, oh, I've never thought about that. But a lot of our coping strategies are ancestral, right? So gardening has always been a thing for us. Like that's why we were essentially brought over here for, you know, our ancestors were was to garden and to cultivate the land and to produce. And so the fact that a lot of us um, maybe don't garden or don't feel comfortable going outside or being in nature, rightfully so, it's definitely justified. We don't always have the best experiences when we go outside into a white world where, you know, there's nature and, you know, there's there's certain significance to trees for us, you know, given like public lynchings and things. So I get that. There's definitely trauma there, but there's also healing there, right? So when we think about water, water is known as a healing element. Our ancestors have always known that, right? That's why we would wade through the water. There's tons of, you know, there's tons of songs about the water. You know, you think about trees, you think about even gardening. I really love because it's cultivating, right? It's, it's kind of feeding into your purpose of, um, you know, of cultivating and bringing something to life and taking care of it. And so, you know, it's just kind of getting back to what we have always known, but sometimes what we need to reconnect to, especially during this time. And so for me, I, I, I mean, I live in Kentucky, but I just have a little, a little pot of tomatoes and peppers out there on my, on my porch. So it's not like I'm out here like tending a whole farm, which I could, but I'm not. So it's just little small things just that give you joy and are different than being on on the game and being on social media and, you know, some of the things that really just don't 
feed into us. Mm-hmm. And then for people who um, do a lot of this movement work, a lot of this work around racial justice, like what um, what coping strategies are kind of, I guess it plays into what we talked about earlier, but like what coping strategies or ways um, would you advise for, for you know, those people to like stay in this, in this movement for a longer time? Because I feel like a lot of um, like our activists and our, uh, our movement workers are like, you know, just put your body on the line, but we don't really get those tools of, like, how to do that and then also take care of ourselves. Like, for people protesting, mm-hmm. like, how can we do that and then also, like, prioritize our, our physical health, our mental health as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to shout out my uh, mentor, Dr. Candace Hargons, because we talk about having a care praxis, which is essentially, you know, praxis meaning, like, a way of life, a way of a way of action. And so we talk about different levels of care, right? And so we kind of, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'll dive a little bit deeper. So oftentimes when we think about self-care, it tends to be things that we use to numb ourselves. And so this could look like binge watching Netflix, eating a whole tub of ice cream, um, having sex, doing drugs, drinking alcohol, uh, watching porn, um, being on, scrolling through your social media, like a lot of things that are numbing, which in some instances can be helpful, right? Like if you've experienced something racist and you gotta go take a test, sometimes you just gotta numb yourself and compartmentalize and do it. I get that. But then there's also a difference between that and self-care, which are things that really you do for yourself to revitalize you and sustain you for the fight. Then you've got collective care, things that you do with other people, just because we're humans and we need that connection. And then you've got soul care, which are things that really transcend the physical and get more into the spiritual purpose and meaning, right? So like I say, yoga and therapy and or yoga and meditation and maybe even gardening and getting outside in nature. And so the thing that's important, this is, this is why it's important, because if you are not practicing different levels of care, or if you're only prioritizing one level of care and not you know, getting all four of them, you can experience racial battle fatigue, right? So you're out there for so long doing this work. This work is exhausting. This work is tiresome. And you're out here. It's not going to sustain you. And so this means being able to take breaks. This means being able to set boundaries. This means also being able to, in a way, take a step back so other people can take a step up. This also means, and I know sometimes black people don't want to hear this, but this also means relying on our white allies to do the work, to do some of the work too, right? And so being able to say, you know what, I've been out here protesting for two weeks. I'm going to take a couple days back, but I know my white allies and other black people who, you know, were able to take some rest, they can step in for me, you know? So not feeling like, we have to do it all and be everywhere and have our hands in so many things because that's going to lead to fatigue. Um, and then, you know, the same thing goes for white people. If you have white listeners that's listening, as an ally, you also got to practice self-care, right? Because if you're out here and you're thinking you're going to change the world and talk to all your racist white friends and, you know, that you're going to get tired too because it's, it's a system. It's designed to make you tired, right? It's designed to be a distraction. So I just want to shout out my, my mentor for that because that language is so important when we think about this work. This work is, will be a generational thing, um, unfortunately. So we got to be in for the long haul, which means taking care of ourselves. And then you mentioned um, the fact that these systems are built to, to wear us down, to tire us out. Like, what um, what advice would you say to, like, interact with these systems? Like, I think about, like, you know, voting, for example, like that. You know, you talk about voter suppression, how that exhausts you. Like, people who work around that, like, it's exhausting work. Like, 
how how do we find that balance between understanding like there are some systems we have to interact with in order to just to live and exist in the social world, but then also like taking care of ourselves? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say a big piece of it is recognizing the difference between advocacy and activism. So advocacy meaning, you know, you're working within the system. Um, activism means, nah, I'm trying to burn the system down and start over. And so I think kind of understanding that framework, because there are folks, you know, I don't want to, I want us to make sure that we all recognize that we're not monolithic. Um, and so there are folks who want to be an advocate, whereas there are other folks who are like, no, burn this down. I want to be an activist. And so kind of also recognizing that piece because everyone has a role to play. And so this is why it's really important that we understand our roles and our frameworks of living, because I think also what tires us out when we're thinking about these systems is that we think everyone wants to be an activist and we think everyone wants to be an advocate. And then we're frustrated and we have these interracial, these intraracial battles with each other of, well, why do you think this way? Why do you think this way? And we all have different ideologies. And so when you think about just the work that we do, we have to be more communicative with each other. And we have to recognize that there's so many ways to interact with these systems, like you mentioned, beyond just let's burn it down. Because some people are like, no, let's let, you know, let me become a legislator so then I can change these policies rather than let's burn the whole system down. Let me work within the system. Let me interact with white people, you know, because I'm good at that. And that's what I want to do. And so I think really just kind of getting more clear on that and being able to, to discuss that and not judge each other for that is also a way that we can learn to interact with each other, interact with the system, and also mitigate um, the racial battle fatigue that comes with that. Because I think sometimes, you know, Black people have this image that all Black people think the same, and they just don't. And that's okay. You know, we need everyone to do their part. And my final question is, um, what is your, your long-term vision for your, your professional career as well as the Black Folks Therapy page moving forward? Ooh, um, hmm, I don't know. That's a good question. I would say for me, career-wise, I, I'm also, I'm taking my own advice, right? So for those who are listening, trust me, I am not on a pedestal, okay? I'm right there with you because I want to do everything. I want to do therapy. I want to do consultation. I want to do research. I want to teach. I want to be a mentor. Like, I want to do it all. And I recognize that, like, that that sounds overwhelming as I say it. And that may not always be possible, especially because, you know, eventually I want to have a family and things. So I know that it's going to be a lot of moving parts. But I think the overall goal and my purpose in life is to continue to help folks and disseminate the knowledge. So using my educational privilege to really give back, right? Like not hoard this information. And so that looks like continuing on with my page and just sharing what I know, sharing what resonates with me, because I figure if it resonates with me, hopefully it'll resonate with someone else. Um, And also just continuing to collaborate with folks. Like I appreciate you inviting me to speak with you today. Um, I would love to continue to just, you know, disseminate this information to folks because you have a platform other folks have a platform I have a platform and so the more information and education we can get out there the better and so that would be my primary goal for BFT the page um, but just in my career doing that in different ways all right thank you so much I appreciate it that's it for this episode you can find us on social media at better to speak underscore or on our website better to speak.org 
If you want to sponsor an episode and support Better to Speak, you can find the link to donate in the description of whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. Be sure to tune in to future episodes where we'll dive into various sociopolitical topics with the goal of transforming silence into language and action. Once again, I'm your host, Casey Felton. Thank you for listening.